All right. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you this Palm Sunday as we celebrate that week, oh, throughout the week, of what Jesus came to do to uh, be, be crucified, but to rise again the third day. And today we talk about Palm Sunday. We're going to do it under the umbrella of our Majestic series. So if you've been following with us through the names of God, we worked our way through the Hebrew names, oh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, and last week... We even did Abba Father. Well, this week we're going to start getting into Jesus' names now. And oh my word, how many names does he have? There's countless names of Jesus. And there's just a few that are really pertinent to our message today. And they're ones that I definitely love. And I think you'll, you think you'll be familiar with them as I bring them up. The first one, first one, do you know this one? Lion of Judah. Have you ever heard Jesus referred to as the lion and the lamb? Well, one of his names is the Lion of Judah. It's referring to the fact that Jesus is the son of David. And one of the elders said to me in Revelation 5, 5, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. One of the coolest parts about his name being the Lion of Judah is that he fulfills all Old Testament prophetic writings about him coming. But on top of that, it speaks to the fact he's from Judah, where Jacob said to Judah, you will be like a lion cub. But from that lineage is David, which means Jesus being the line of Judah is speaking to his kingly nature that he's from the Davidic line, the lion of Judah. It speaks to him being a king. I love this one too. You've heard of him called the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Jesus is the Passover Lamb, if you will. He is the Lamb that is sacrificed for sin for all time. Oh, it was John the Baptist who said the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is king, but he is the Lamb. You remember at Passover, they killed a spotless lamb and wiped the blood over the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over? Well, they would always kill a Passover lamb for the sacrificial system, for without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness on the people, the law told them. But that shedding of blood was through a substitute lamb for the people. Well, Jesus is the lamb of God sacrificed one time for all our past, present, and future sins. It's Peter who says, you've been bought with the blood, that of a lamb without blemish. The lamb of God, our substitute, our sacrifice for sin. And how many of you know this name? The author and finisher. It's Hebrews that tells us about the author and finisher. It says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame of it, and is seated at the right hand at the throne of God. Do you know his name, author, and finisher? It speaks to his eternality, that he is the beginning and the end. My Greek students say the alpha and the omega. He wrote it. He's the author. Anybody in here ever write a book? He wrote the story, and he is faithful to finish the story. I remember in elementary school, we would read books sometimes that would have alternate endings. 
and we would get to choose which ending we liked. Well, Jesus wrote the ending, and breaking news, he wins. He's the victor, amen? And when you know how the book ends, it gives you hope when it feels like some of the chapters he's losing. He's never losing. He is the walking victor. He is, yes, here it is, Jesus, Messiah. Messiah. And that's the name we're gonna focus on today, that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. That's the idea behind the name Messiah. It means anointed one. They would anoint things with oil that were chosen and set apart for a specific purpose. The Messiah was set apart for a specific purpose to come, the Lion of Judah, and sacrifice his life as the Lamb of God because he started the story, the author, and he's faithful to finish it. And today, we're gonna study that name, Messiah, and we're gonna look at it in the context of Palm Sunday, that Jesus is the anointed one. Did you know that saying Jesus Christ and saying Jesus Messiah is basically saying the same thing? You studied with me Jehovah and Yahweh coming from Adonai's vowels and Yahweh's constant consonants. Well, in Jesus, you have words that mean in Hebrew and Greek different, but the same things as well. For example, Jesus can mean Messiah, Christ, and king. I mean, it's the name above all names, and it carries the fact that he was the anointed one. It varies the idea of Christ, which is similar to Messiah, Messiah coming from Mishak and from Christ, from Christos. And then you also have king. See, when you say Jesus Christ, or if you say King Jesus, you're basically saying the same thing. You sometimes see this Jesus Christ in scripture, and it carries these ideas of his kingliness, his anointedness, and his Christ-likeness, and that's why, just a little side note, that's why when the high priest Caiaphas in Hebrew says, are you the Christ? It's the same exact question that Pilate asks, being a Roman, are you the king of the Jews? Christ, king, same thing. Today, we focus on that name, Messiah. Would you pray with me before we dig in to the Gospel of Luke, and we look at that account of Palm Sunday, and we see the, the craftsmanship and the amazing writing style and ability of Luke. It's always, if you're gonna go through a gospel and you wanna study an account, Luke is your go-to. He is phenomenal writer. Obviously, it's all God-breathed, but God used his incredible writing, his compassion, his perspectives, to bring things to life in the Palm Sunday account that you might not have seen otherwise. And that's why we're gonna pull out some of these names of God in the account as we celebrate this day, Palm Sunday. What, what does Palm Sunday mean to you? What do you even think about? Um, a bunch of branches getting waved around? That was probably because you went to Sunday school as a little kid and walked up the aisles with branches, right? Is there more? Like, if, if you really study this Palm Sunday out, do you think there's actually more juice to be squeezed out of the lemon, if you will? I pray today you don't come at Palm Sunday as just another day, but you get to see in this account not only our Messiah, not only Jesus as Messiah, Christ, and King, but I pray you get his perspective 
And this is what we'll pray today. Heavenly Father, use this text to get us excited about the word of God, but also to give us a holistic view of what occurred that day. For Lord, we don't want to be naive to what scripture has for us on this day to process. And so Lord, I pray it's not only a time where we educationally grow, but I pray it's a time where we spiritually grow in our perspective on how we view the circumstances of our life. For there are many in here today that may only be here because they're supporting a relative this Easter season. There may be here today who are going through tremendous loss. And if they're very honest, they're a little disappointed with God's plan for their life. There's some in here today who are rejoicing greatly and they're excited, but would they be if life got difficult? Lord, there's many perspectives we bring to the table on a Sunday morning, many emotions that we bring into the room or that we have as we watch online. And Lord, I pray that you would help us focus not on our perspective of scripture, of Palm Sunday, but on your perspective. And may that enlighten us in how we are to look at life. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you may have heard me reference a few times in my prayer perspective. Are you familiar with the letters P-O-V? See, I like acronyms. In fact, I refer to them often, and you use them all in texting. For example, if I pull a few of these up, you might recognize this one, LOL, laughing out loud. How about SMH, anybody know? Shaking my head, right, right? Now, some of the younger people know how to put curse words in there, but this is church. BFF, PTL, some of you are really good at this. That's a Christian one, PTL, you gotta have that. Exclamation mark should be behind it, Chris. BTW? BRB? NOYB? None of your business. Come on, Rapata! Yeah, at least this church knows. At least this church knows. Some people are like, what on earth is Rapata? POV. Point of view. You know where we get the phrase point of view? It, it comes from a director's point of view, describing a method of shooting a scene, expressing the attitude of a director's view of the scene. Isn't that interesting? The director's view of the scene. See, I have a view of Palm Sunday. You probably do too. But have you ever processed it through the director's point of view? Hmm. You know, Luke is such a masterful storyteller that inspired by God, he gives us three perspectives on Palm Sunday before going into what I plan to do the director's perspective. What? Yeah, yeah. Jesus's perspective? Let's do it. But let's start with the disciples. And then we'll move to the crowds and then to the Pharisees and we'll see their P-O-V. Scripture tells us in Luke 19, 28, we love the word of God here. Let's read it. 
It says this, and when he and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Some of you just write down in your notes, going up to Jerusalem. Oh, that was a 3,300 foot ascent into Jerusalem. That was 17 miles you just put in your notes. Why did you do that? Because that is how much this is a pathway towards an event. Those who understand Luke and style know that he likes to include the fact that Jesus would set his face towards Jerusalem. The whole idea carried the same as saying something like, Jesus began his death march. For him to set his face towards Jerusalem means I am going to fulfill my messianic role of coming to pay and die for the sins of the world. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, now before we go any further, I don't know about you, but I'm a visual learner and I'm a visual thinker. So let's pull a map up and let's get an idea of where we're at if we're headed towards Bethpage and we're headed towards Bethany near the Mount of Olivet, okay? So we're outside the city, we're coming in, we're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. You've probably heard of that place. Jesus was there often praying to his father. Isn't it interesting that Judas didn't need to wonder where Jesus was the night of betrayal? Jesus was a man of prayer. But if you get your bearings on this map a little bit and you see the house of Caiaphas, you see Herod's palace, there's Golgotha in the gardens. You see the quarries and the Antonio fortress that he would be taken at multiple times. He'd be outside the temple. There's the pool of Bethesda. Okay, and now here's the Gethsemane. There's the tombs. Here's the Passover fields where the lambs would be on the nights of the Passover and out there beyond the gardens. There were even lambs probably at the feet of Golgotha. We got Bethpage. Bethany, and there's the Mount of Olivet. And so Jesus is coming from outside of town, and he says, I want you guys to do something. I want you to go into the village in front of you, and where you're entering it there, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. I want you to untie it and bring it here. What? You see, you get a picture in this passage here as we approach Jerusalem of his humanity and his divinity. Here, divinity. You can see that he says, I want you to go into the city and you're going to find a colt or you're going to find a donkey. And nobody has ever rode on it. He didn't text ahead and say, hey, do you have one that nobody rode on? He knows. He knows it's there. Oh, this is getting cool. Okay, he says this. Now, if anyone asks, okay, if anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Here's what you say. The Lord has need of it. Now, about you, but I'm kind of concerned that that might not suffice. But let's keep reading. So those who were sent... They went away and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. How cool is that? They went ahead and they found the colt just as Jesus said. I mean, you think it's over here? Oh, there it is. There it is. Nobody's ever rode on it. I mean, kids, that's like your parents going, okay, on Christmas morning, you open up this little gift and inside it, there's going to be a note. And it's going to lead you to the ultimate gift. 
go ahead. They open it up. There's a key. Go upstairs and unlock the box. <gasps> There's a box. They run upstairs. <gasps> There's the box. And they unlock it. And it says, go behind mom and dad's bed where the large painting is. <gasps> and they go to the painting. Take the painting off. <gasps> and behind it, open the trap door that leads to the basement so mom and dad can escape all trials of life. No, no, no. Anyway, but what I'm saying is, I mean, you'd be like, it's just so cool. I had the youth group convinced one time that there was a tunnel from the parsonage to the gym that I could get out if I had to. Really? Yeah, but, you know, I can't tell you about it. <laughs> this is so cool. What's going on here? God, Jesus is just saying, hey, tell them the Lord has need of it. Go untie the colt. And they find it. And as they were untying it, its owner said to them, does anybody want to take a guess? They said this. Why are you untying the colt? And they're like, oh, we know the answer to this. The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Messiah says, the Lord has need of it. And they follow. I got thinking about this line, the Lord has need of it. I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't think that should go. I mean, let's say hypothetically, Pastor Chris tomorrow goes to a car dealership. And he walks into the car dealership and he looks around at the cars and he, he spots a 22 Corvette. And he thinks in his head, wow, that could be used for visitation ministry. And he goes over and he gets in the car. Boom. And the dealers, and we got plenty of car dealers in this crowd, so they're glaring at me right now. And the car dealers say, what are you doing? And I say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Is that going to go? You see, it seems like when you look at life through the disciples' point of view, everything's just a little bit different. Have you ever thought something, but then when you saw it through the other person's point of view, it changed the way you thought? Have you ever wondered what my point of view is like? Like when I look out here, what I see. You know you all pretty much sit in the same spot each week? You don't really surprise me that much. In fact, when you do, it throws me off. Like, whoa, what's going on? You're like, are you guys okay? You know, I thought it'd be interesting. I thought it'd be interesting uh, to give you guys my perspective. L let me see. I'm going to come back here for a minute. Let me see if I can get a cameraman. Let me come back. Hopefully the screens stay on anyway. What do we got back here? Hey, guys. Oh, there we go. Right here. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. We're going to show them my perspective. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. All right, come on out here. Now, this is where we go. We got the order of service right here. This is where I stand, and I can barely start to breathe, and then I pray, and then we come out here, okay? And now you, you show them what, what they look like. Okay, come on. Let's come all the way out here. All right, here they are. I can see them. Okay, look at my notes. Every year, they get a little bit smaller. I don't know why. It's my, I keep the font the same, I thought, but they're getting small. Now, now I want you to go right here. Now, let's, let's show them my point of view. Here we go. Go right across. Look, look at them all. They're all like dressing up and smiling. 
online crowd, you just saw yourself. There you go, there you go, there you go, there they are. So that's what I see each week. And so when you sit there, like, I'm thinking I'm dead man after the service, right? I mean, that's what, hey, hey, give Elijah a hand. Give our, give our camera guys a hand. You know, you know, sometimes in churches and things like that, sometimes people will be, why are you going to do all this production? L- listen, we have over 20 people, young people, adults in the, that make up our tech ministry. It's like one of our awesome ministries. And a lot of young people grow up in our church going, I want to be part of the tech ministry someday. And it's their opportunity to serve. And so many people working in production each Sunday are so committed to being here and making it an awesome opportunity, not only for you guys, but for those online. Give our tech team just a little bit of a clap. We appreciate them so much. But I got thinking, the Lord has need of it. Have you ever sat back and thought through that? You know, sometimes the world, they can hear believers talk and we sound silly to them and I'm being nice. But we'll say things like, I really feel like God wanted me to do that. And you'll see it show up even sometimes in articles and they felt God was leading them to do that. And we look at it and go, yeah, and the world sometimes looks at it as like crazy. Have you ever had something, a possession, or something God's blessed you with and you went, you know what, I wanna use that for God? Maybe it's your business and you have been doing it for a lot of years for yourself, but you know what, you started thinking about your business and you were going, you know, I wonder if the Lord has need of it. <laughs> There's people that buy property and there'll be like a barn on the property. And they'll stand there and they go, we want to buy it. And they tell their realtor, we could use this for our church and for youth events. And the kids could do things. And the realtors are looking at them like, yeah, I guess. And they look at that barn, not as some big old building. They look at it and go, the Lord has need of it. I, I know people that have used vehicles and lent them out to people for certain time periods, people visiting from different countries to the church. Why? Because the Lord has need of it. Is there anything more valuable than your time? I remember being on a retreat one time with middle schoolers, and in my same cabin was a surgeon with me. And he said, sometimes when I leave for work or take a vacation day to go early with a retreat, some of my co-workers will say, you're using vacation days to go away with middle schoolers? I mean, that's a valuable use of your time, right? Or is it possible that the Lord has need of it? I know people in our church who take vacation days for day camp. Let me help you out. And they use their vacation days. It's as if they looked at their vacation days and went, you know what? The Lord has need of it. Yeah, maybe to the world it doesn't make sense, but to the disciple, their point of view, they go, whatever the Lord has need of, I want to have it. You know, I had a mentor in my life. He said, Chris, you want to have void of materialism? Because, hey, we got stuff. We live in Bucks County. We're going to have stuff. So the way to avoid it is never own anything you wouldn't be willing to lend to somebody if they needed it. 
Because if you're unwilling to lend it, there's a good chance that item is an idol. I got looking around my house. Some of you ladies who your husband will give the shirt off his back to somebody are terrified while I'm preaching right now because they're going to go home and go, the Lord has need of that. <laughs> and maybe he does. Maybe it'll come. Maybe you'll figure it out. But what if you get the privilege of God using something you have been entrusted with for him? Young person, maybe that baseball bat the Lord has need of. You thought it was for you, but he wants to leverage that for him. I like to call it the Lord has need of it principle. I want you to be thinking, is it just a donkey or is Messiah teaching his disciples something about who he's about? What about the crowds? How did they see Messiah? Scripture tells me, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now that's odd. Has anybody done this this week? Somebody was coming in the house. I mean, when I come in, I expect my kids to take off their coats and lay them down as I walk in. Thank you. Is dinner ready? So when I read that, I go, okay, certainly some kind of kingly treatment's going on here. I mean, we, gotta, we can understand this. Well, well, I jump into another account. See, the gospels are parallel accounts, and Matthew tells me more about this. He says this, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others, they started cutting branches down from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Matthew tells me more. He says this, and then the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they were shouting. What, what, what were they shouting? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're screaming, they're shouting. Let me do a modern day equivalent. E-A-G-L-E-S, eagle. That's what's going on here. Sorry if you're not from Pennsylvania. Or at least the east side of Pennsylvania for my Steelers fans. As he was drawing near, already on the way down of the Mount of Olives, you got that image in your head. The whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for, for what? For what? For what? Because he was the savior? For all the mighty works that they had seen. Oh, people love a God that does what they want. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want a God that loves what they love, hates what they hate, tolerates what they tolerate. Who doesn't want a God who does cool stuff? That's what crowds want. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And all my Hebrew scholars, they just wrote down in their notes. That's the Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalm. What? Yeah. The Hallel was sung at religious events. It's Psalm 118. It's blessed is the king comes in the name of the Lord. And if you know what the Hallel is, do you know what the Hallel Psalm is? Is this a description for it? It's the victor's song. They're singing a victory chant. They might as well be going, na, 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 na. 
na, 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 right? He's coming. He's going to deliver. And, and, and they're screaming and they're praising. And, and if you really want their point of view, they're behaving as if they think Jesus is performing a triumph. What? Yeah, and if you know historically what a triumph is, it begins to make sense why they're behaving the way they are, throwing their cloaks, waving branches, screaming Hosanna. This is almost a foe, F-A-U-X. This is like a, a foe Roman triumph. Did you know there were aspects of a Roman triumph that everybody understood at that time? That is why we have a lot of our parade aspects when we see parades. They often come from these Roman triumphs. One, there would be a procession that would begin outside the city. Do you remember the map? Then there would be requirements. There had to be a victor coming into town who has won a victory. Then there'd have to be pomp and circumstance. It would start with trumpets. Then behind the trumpets often came floats. They would even have paintings. They paint battle scenes and they hold it up. Some of the great warriors who had accomplished great feats. And then oftentimes within that would come those that have been captured as if a celebration of this is what we accomplished. And on top of that, the victor would come often riding a white horse which was a sign of victory and his disciples. Messiah said the Lord has need of it, but Messiah now is listening to Hosanna. Hosanna, which means save now. <laughs> and a little cultural background. These were palm branches. Do you know what palm branches were called? They were called hosannas. And so what you have here is a bunch of people waving hosanna, waving, ready? Save now, save now, save now. Simon the Zealot, a political guy who wanted Jesus to make the Jews great again in a million ways is loving Palm Sunday. Save now, right? And they're walking by the horse. They got the horse, Jesus sitting on it. Oh, let's go, let's go. I mean, this is their moment. I mean, Jesus is behaving like a conqueror. He's gonna take over the Romans. He's gonna release the Jews. He is gonna do it. Save now, save now. What would they do on Friday? Crucify. What? They're going to go from Hosanna to crucify? I mean, how, how can emotions change that quickly? EA! Oh my word, another interception. I hate this team. I am never watching this again. I ruin every single Sunday. What? I was being hypothetical. That doesn't happen. I have seen videos of people destroying expensive televisions after playoff losses. And some of you are looking at me like, I understand. <laughs> yes, crowds are finical. And they can go from fandom to hatred in two seconds. It got me thinking. Save now. Where am I like that in my spiritual life? 
Where am I behaving like a fan and not a follower? How do I know? Well, you see a fan on Sunday. I love Jesus. And then on Monday, our attitudes change, our actions change, our mouth changes, our thought life changes. You see, because discipleship isn't just when the team's winning. Oh, Jesus is the victor, but sometimes discipleship means you're going to pay for a little bit. Hey, college student, I'll give you a heads up. If you go into college like this, you're going to get the snot kicked out of you. You have to know what you believe. You have to know what you stand for. And you have to be prepared to be made fun of for it. It's a guarantee. It's not fun. It's not easy. And it's for the few, not the many. Discipleship costs something. There's a sacrifice to it. I have had things said about me while I'm preaching that get reported back to me that make no mistake, they sting, they hurt. But I was told that this whole thing was far more than just this. And the first time you get punched in the face, not physically, hypothetically, or at least prayerfully, that's not the case. With a comment or a mockery of what you believe, you find out really quick whether you're in the crowd or whether you're a disciple. But isn't it good to know? Because there were so many times I was a chameleon Christian, I just fit in wherever I needed to fit in. Especially in high school. I knew how to fit in wherever I needed to. But isn't it good to know that Jesus grows us more like him? Because it's so easy to preach condemnation on us when we say, yeah, there's been times I've acted like a fan and not a follower. But I've noticed he's been so patient with me for those times. Can I ask you, is there a spot in your life right now where you're being challenged with what I like to call the save now principle? Has Jesus messed with your timing? I wanted grandma healed by now. I wanted this situation at work over by now. I didn't want to go through this much pain. I didn't want this much rejection. These are save now moments. And you have to ask yourself in these moments, is his timing better than my timing? Because the reason so many people walk away from the faith is because Jesus didn't do the thing they wanted him to do. And now disappointment is winning the day. What about the Pharisees? Uh, there's a cynic in every crowd, right? What was their response to this scene? Luke tells us. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Yell at them. Yell at yeah, Yell at This is a joke. This is idiotic. This is some fake attempt on a Roman triumph. This guy is a clown riding in on a donkey. 
thinking he is the Messiah of prophecy. How many things did they bring into that emotion of, teacher, rebuke your disciples? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, if these crowds were silent, the very stones would cry out. Isn't that interesting? Jesus leverages a Pharisee's favorite weapon, stoning. And he goes, you know what? Who knows? Maybe one of the Pharisees was even holding one. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I don't know. That's conjecture. I tell you what, he says, if all these crowds were silent, those rocks would cry out. What? It's almost as Jesus is saying, you want to know who's dumb in this situation? Not these crowds waving their branches. If anybody's dumb as rocks, it's those who think this is just a little play. There's something going on this day. And Messiah will not rebuke his disciples, despite the fact he's told to, despite the fact the Roman soldiers are probably snickering at this, let's be honest. Despite the fact the Pharisees are mocking him, despite the fact that they feel this is sacrilegious to a Roman triumph, Jesus comes in, and folks, there would be an estimated million-some people in Jerusalem at this time. It's Passover, And Jesus comes in. Have you ever had to deal with moments where you've had people go, rebuke your disciples? Have you ever had these moments where you kind of took some shots for serving God? I know I've sat back sometimes and thought, rebuke your disciples. Where am I? Where am I at? Where are you at? Have there been times where you've looked around a room this size and go, what if we're all the, what if we're all the idiots? I mean, what if that pastor's just up there saying a bunch of stuff and, I mean, look around. I mean, maybe the joke's on us. Have you ever had moments where you've kind of doubted and you're like, you know, that person has a lot of letters behind their name. They must be smarter than God. They must be. I mean, old stuff is outdated and dumb. If it's new, it's cool and I should do it. I mean, that's what the world tells me. I mean, can I trust something like this? I mean, I think everybody, if they're honest, has had some moments where they've dealt with somebody dismissing their views, mocking their practices, or maybe even bullying them into silence. The stone, if you will. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then when Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it. What? He saw the city and he wept over it. I mean, why is he crying? I mean, think about how sad it must have been for his disciples 
to see him on the donkey coming up to the city and just bawling. What's going on? How can we match that emotion as an audience listening to this? Luke, something wants to come over him because Luke is describing this in such detail. I I heard an awesome illustration by John Piper one time called The Young Doctor. He said, imagine, if you will, a young doctor who works for the military being asked to go on a special mission to a country that was struggling with an epidemic. Now, boy, does that relate. And he's there. And he's working on this disease and he's trying to save people's lives, but he begins to not feel well. He goes and he gets a test and they find out a few weeks later as he's called into the audience that he has attracted the disease that he came to actually save them from. They tell him this is life threatening. You have months to live. Soldier, go home. Be with your family. He concludes not to tell them. There'll be a moment, but not yet. And he flies home and he lands in that airport. And his two boys come running to him. Dad, dad, daddy. And he kneels down. He looks up at his wife and they can always spot when something's going on. And she can see there's something different in his eyes. He's hugging those boys knowing he has weeks or months to live. And they're looking at like he's going to save the day that he's home. And if you can look into that doctor's eyes, you just get a little bit of a glimpse of the point of view of Jesus that day. Where everybody is singing and yelling and screaming. He sees Peter next to him holding the rope. We got the donkey. He sees Simon the Zealot, yeah, the rocks will cry out. And he knows he's on a death march into a city where he's going to pay for the sins of the world, including those living in the year 2022. When he looked at Jerusalem, he saw a week ahead of him that would include Monday's fig tree, Tuesday's cleansing of the temple, Thursday, the upper room, Friday, the crucifixion, Sunday, the resurrection. And for the joy set before him, he moved forward. But this week would be a week of tremendous pressure, of tremendous mocking and punching and torture that no human should have ever gone through. They ripped open his back and slammed him on a cross. And he wept. And you get to see his divinity and his humanity. But throughout all of those things, Jesus is showing us that he's moving forward as the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, Messiah. See, what was coming in that day was the Lamb of God. And that Lamb of God would be riding a donkey. Look at his name. Let's put it up, Lamb of God. The Lord has need of it. He's got his disciples grabbing a robe and getting that donkey to bring in the Lamb of God. You say, Chris, I hear you, but wait, watch this, watch this. So I'm 500 years before this account, 
in the book of Zechariah, there was a prophecy. It said this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Is it possible that whatever the Lord has need of that you have, he may use for his greater plan? Oh, yes. For even that donkey got to be a part of the Palm Sunday message, bringing in the Lamb of God on Passover, exactly when it was prophesied. What you had coming into town was the Messiah, the Lion of Judah. He was a king. Grab your branches. He is a king. Shout Hosanna. He's going to save. Maybe not the way you wanted, but the way we all needed. Wave your branches. The Lion of Judah has arrived. And what's amazing is that you might be waving that branch going, I got one God to do things in my timing. But he is always demonstrating his timing is perfect, and he does it again this day. Did you know there's a Daniel prophecy? It's in chapter 9, verse 25. Daniel in Babylon writes, Know therefore and understand. That is prophetic language. If you were with us during our series, during lockdown actually, we were going through Daniel. Know therefore and understand is a phrase of prophetic Language is coming. He says this, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Seven weeks times seven, 49, 434. I did the math for you. You add them together, you get 483 years. What's interesting about that to Bible prophecy students, is that Daniel says at the moment of the command to rebuild the walls. So we hearken back to Nehemiah that there is a clock that starts on the Jewish calendar of 490 years. On the 483rd year, Messiah, the prince, will come. Math done by people a lot smarter than me. Calculate that Within the Jewish calendar days, which is more 360 days than 365 days, plus you have to account for their sunrises and sunsets that are different than ours, and a lot of other stuff, that that would be 173,880 days, which means when the temple command to rebuild in 445 BC began, 483 years later would be 32 AD, and they have traced that almost exactly to the day Jesus came in. To Jerusalem. Wave your branches. The Lion of Judah, child of God, is always on time. And he's doing more than what you could ever ask or think. And those times when I'm disappointed in his timing or his plan for myself, for my wife, or for my children, those times where I feel a little disappointment because I had a better way, I can take note that Messiah has always been teaching me, Chris, I can use the things that you have, and my timing is always best, even if you don't like it. Ask Lazarus. My timing is better 
than everyone's. The stone said, the author and finisher is here. He cannot be stopped. You can mock it. You can spit on it. You can excuse it. It won't go away. Jesus is the author and finisher. He knows how the story ends. See, I like watching the Phillies. I like it even better when I know they won, so I'm not wasting my time. And so when I use that little DVR button, if they lost, I don't watch it. <laughs> if they win, I watch it. Life is different when you know how it ends. Child of God, you know how this story ends. So regardless of what's being said about you or what you believe, if you know how the story ends, maybe the snicker is actually in your own head. But maybe the eyes of compassion will see those who don't believe with a heart of love instead of condemnation. Put the stone down, child of God. That's not for you. Love, even your enemies. One of the last things Jesus said on that cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't get what's going on here. The disciples didn't even get what's going on here. The crowds didn't even get what's going on here. The Pharisees didn't even get what's going on here. And when Jesus died on that cross, scripture tells me in Matthew that behold, the curtain of the temple was ripped from the top down and the earth shook and go ahead and read it for me. And the rocks were split. Man, there's something about rocks as an illustration of my heavenly father. I tell you, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. And just days later, they did. With a donkey, Jesus said, I am the lamb of God. With a branch, he said, I am the lion of Judah. And with a stone, he said, I am the author and finisher. And with his life and his sacrifice, he showed, I am the Messiah. You know, in Matthew, he says, when he entered Jerusalem, this is the parallel account. When he entered Jerusalem, it, it's amazing. Listen to the words that Matthew used. All the city was stirred. This comes from Sa'el or seismic. All the city was like kind of shaken. Oh, there wasn't like an earthquake going on. That would happen after he died. But it was stirring. Have you ever been around a crowd and you're like, whoa, there's something going on? That's what Matthew's saying. It was just like stirring. And they were all asking a question. And look at the question. Look at the question. Who is this? I mean, who is this? You know, this isn't the question. You've got to get answered this side of eternity. We get one go. There's this statistic out there. It's pretty conclusive. 10 out of 10 people die. And so if that's true, while you're alive, you need to answer this question. Because guess what? This guy's name just won't go away, will it? This guy's name causes a reaction, doesn't it? 
You can say a lot of people's names, but this name is polarizing. It just seems like there's just something about this name. And you have to answer, who is this? Well, you say, I would, Chris, but I'm not like that religious guy. I just trying to support grandma. So I showed up at church today. Hold up. You know Jesus is authenticated outside of scripture. This isn't a mythical character. This isn't something history doesn't give an account of. In fact, leave the Bible and you can find over five sources, including the Talmud, that speak of Jesus Christ. So it's not like you can dismiss it like I don't read the Bible. Okay, leave the Bible for a minute. Walk into Flavius Josephus, the Roman first century historian who wrote in accounts outside of scripture things like this. There was about that time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things about him. See, you can't just go, oh, that's for the Bible people. They kind of need a religious crutch to get through life. You have to go, wait a minute. This is a historical figure. And maybe, maybe you don't believe people who have titles like pastor or whatever, okay? But maybe you only listen to people who have lots of letters behind their names. So, so like, for example, like an historian, like, it's really accomplished a story. How about E.M. Blakelock? If you were with our last series, I brought up Blakelock. He's actually the professor of classics at the University of Auckland in New England, and he's got a ton of letters, He says this, I claim to be historian. My approach to the classics is historical. And I can tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of all ancient history. Who is this? Who is this that can cause such emotion? Well, I guess it's your point of view. Are you a disciple? Well, then the Messiah is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you the crowd? Well, then maybe just the Messiah is a liberator, and if he doesn't do what you want, he's not worth following. Are you a Pharisee? And this guy's just a fool. You know, I think everybody in this crowd and maybe watching online has found themselves in all three categories at some point in their life. But for those who are disciples, they have cast their lot with this Jesus. And they're going to go with them until the wheels fall off. Because they have found in their own life, there is a change that that name makes when you submit to it. And you find a friend that's closer to a brother. You find a friend who's with you in all circumstances. And you find someone who can save you from the bondage of your life. And that's why these disciples go, whatever I got, if the Lord has need of it, it's his. And I'm waving this branch even when I'm crying about the loss that's occurring in my life or the circumstance I'm going through. And I'm not throwing this stone because I'm no better than anybody else. There's no perfect people allowed in this church or on this stage. We're all the same dirt under the cross. And we praise him 
Because if we don't, these rocks will start doing it. Because he is the Messiah, the anointed one. And when we talk about Palm Sunday, we know we're talking about one of the names of the name above all name, Jesus Christ. See your savior? I pray he is. If he hasn't become one yet, our pastors would love to talk to you after the service in our first steps room. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder on Palm Sunday of who you are and what you've done. You're a good God, a great God, and you love us so dearly. Heavenly Father, use this view of Palm Sunday to help shape our thinking for those times when you ask us to sacrifice something we dearly love for you. May we say, the Lord has need of it. May we remember Palm Sunday on those days where we don't like your timing or we're kind of disappointed that you didn't maybe do what we wanted you to. And may we say, Hosanna, just the same. And Lord, for those times where that cynic pops up in even our own heads, and we say, I'm struggling with that. May you remind us to follow creation's lead and to understand that you are, you are the creator God, you are Messiah, and we can trust you. Lord, thank you for Palm Sunday. It's not just a, a time of waving branches. It's a time of learning about who our Jesus is. May we see life from his point of view. Amen.